0: All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, through 13 the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you so much, Heather, and thank you all for being with us this morning. It's great to have you here today at River Oaks. We are uh, continuing our study of the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Now, if you've never read the book of 1 Corinthians, it was written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was involved in the founding of this church. We read about that in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 18, we read that... um, when Paul went to Corinth, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. They came to faith in Jesus. And they came to faith in Christ out of a culture in which uh, idolatry was quite prevalent. But they believed Paul, preaching the gospel of Jesus. They, they became believers. And uh, this was the case with many of Paul's missionary travels. He helped to start churches and then later would write letters back to those churches, uh, discipling them, teaching them. And in the case of this letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul seems to be responding to a number of questions that the Corinthian believers had, a number of issues in the church at Corinth. He's giving quite a bit of correction and direction. And there are a number of things, as we've seen so far in this letter, that We're going on in the church that Paul outright forbids. For example, the divisiveness in the church. Some people were creating factions within the church saying, I follow Paul, I follow Peter. He forbids that. We get to chapter 5 and he forbids the practice of uh, sexual immorality. get to chapter 6 and he forbids the lawsuits among themselves within the church. We get to chapter 8 and he forbids eating in an idol's temple. But then we get to chapter 11 that we looked at last week, where he taught about the Lord's Supper, what we often refer to as communion. And he gives correction. He doesn't disallow the Lord's Supper, but he corrects the abuses within the Lord's Supper so that they would honor the Lord's Supper appropriately and receive the benefits that God intended from it. Similarly now, he gets to the area of spiritual gifts. He doesn't devalue or disallow the spiritual gifts in any way. Rather, he corrects the abuses so that the gifts will be used properly. The Apostle Paul gives the strongest possible encouragement to seek and receive spiritual gifts. Three times in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 He uses the words, earnestly desire, regarding spiritual gifts. This is not a mere suggestion. You might want to think about seeking God about spiritual gifts. It's an imperative. It's a mandate. Earnestly desire these gifts. And yet he teaches that they be used properly. As we go through chapter 12, the key idea is the oneness of the body of Christ, the church. Unity in diversity is a key idea in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. These gifts are expressions of God's varied grace for his people. So, as we make our way through the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see that there are varieties of spiritual gifts given by the one Holy Spirit. We read these words again in verses 4 to 6. Now, there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities or outworkings, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Notice his focus on the variety of spiritual gifts that God gives, variety of gifts, varieties of service, the way those gifts are used and variety of outworkings of the various gifts. But, he notes, the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God is the one who empowers them all in every one. I think this is a subtle reference to the Trinity at work when he talks about the Spirit, the Lord, God. God gives this great variety of gifts. Now, the word gifts, as he uses it in verse 4 here, is a plural form of the Greek word that we we would pronounce uh, charisma. It's the word charismata. Um, and I think it's worth defining because Paul uses some form of this word charisma or uh, charismata throughout his teachings about gifts, not only in 1 Corinthians 12, but also in Romans 12 And uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter uses the same word. We hear the word charisma, and sometimes we think it has to do with the person's personality. And we say, that person's got a lot of charisma, outgoing personality, or something like that. That's not at all the way Paul is using it. He's using the word charisma to refer to a gift from God, and the root of this word comes from the word uh, for grace, charis, the Greek word charis, or charin, for grace. All that is to say that these gifts, whether here in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 or 1 Peter 4, are simply expressions of God's grace that he gives for his people, for the upbuilding of his people. I would say in this, uh, any of these lists of gifts, Romans chapter 12, the ones that Heather read a moment ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, these are not exhaustive lists. That is, the the nine gifts that that, uh, Heather read for us a moment ago in verses 8 to 10 of this chapter are not all the gifts there are. There are seven uh, uh, mentioned in Romans chapter 12, nine mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, eight more with some overlap at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, and two in 1 Peter chapter 2. And in every case, some form of the word charisma is used referring to these gifts. The Apostle Paul, earlier in writing to the Corinthians, talked about his singleness as a gift. He said, everyone, I wish everybody was like me, he said, but everybody has its own gift from God. And he uses the word charisma. He calls his singleness, the grace of God upon his life to serve God as a single person, a grace gift from God. I think we see a number of grace, gifts from God at work, even in the Old Testament. For example, the book of Exodus, we read these words about someone whom God anointed to to do artistic work. Exodus 31 and verse 3 speaks of a man named Bezalel, and God says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs. Have you ever thought about a person who can create beauty, artistic design, things to aid in the worship of God, just as was the case in the Old Testament temple, as being gifted by the Spirit of God to do that? There are varieties of gifts, Paul says, varieties of services, varieties of activities, outworkings of these gifts, but it's the same God who gives all in all. Second thing we see as we work our way through this part of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is that gifts are given by the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, manifestation being the making visible of the work of the Spirit for the common good, not to put a spotlight on a particular person, but for the benefit, the greater good. Gifts are not necessarily marks of spiritual maturity. That's why it's very unwise to elevate a person because of his or her gift or to follow a person because of his or her gift. A mark of spiritual maturity, better mark of spiritual maturity is the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. These are marks of spiritual maturity. God can give a person a spiritual gift the very second they come to faith in Jesus. Not necessarily marks of spiritual maturity. So it's unwise to elevate a person because of his or her spiritual gift. If something is a gift from God, we should feel humble gratitude about it rather than pride about it. Apostle Paul said elsewhere, I think, to the Corinthians, what do you have that you've not received? If it's received from God, how can you be arrogant about it? Gifts are not given to elevate a person, but for the common good. Thirdly, and this is really important, I think, to grasp, gifts are given as the Spirit wills. Gifts are given as the Holy Spirit wills. The Apostle Paul, after listing nine of these spiritual gifts, writes, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. We cannot demand gifts from God. He chooses their distribution. We're called to earnestly desire them. Paul says that three times in uh, chapters 12 and 14. To seek them, to pray for them, sure. But He controls the how and the when of the manifestation of these gifts. I think it's particularly important we think about things like healings and miracles. I heard a minister say fairly recently, and he was arguing against the present-day operation of spiritual gifts. He said, show me a miracle and I'll believe in miracles. Well, I think he needed to understand that gifts are not like a faucet that we can turn on and off. They're given as the Spirit wills and when the Spirit wills. The scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, show us a sign, we'll believe. Show us a sign and we'll believe. Jesus has said it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. We can't demand these things on our terms. God may use things like dramatic healings, miracles, manifestations of His Spirit at times and places of His own choosing that we don't Often understand. People sometimes wonder, why don't we see these things we see in the book of Acts happening right here all the time? I don't have a good answer for it. God knows he chooses these things as he wills, but I'll tell you this, I read over the years probably hundreds of missions accounts from around the world and find that God does certain things in certain ways when the gospel is proceeding in power that are of his own choosing. Gifts are given as the Spirit wills. And then fourthly, critically important to grasp this as Paul summarizes his thoughts in the first part of this chapter, the Holy Spirit unites all believers as one body of Christ. And again, Paul's purpose here is not so much to define the gifts that he's listing, as it is to focus on the unity and diversity of the body of Christ to call us to oneness as believers. And he writes, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, immersed into the body of Christ, joined into the body of Christ. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Jesus, when he was on earth, had a flesh and blood body. He offered his body up on the cross when he was nailed there after being scourged and flogged and brutally beaten. He shed his blood there on the cross. He died there to pay for our sins. He was the Lamb of God slain for our sins. He was our substitute. He took our place. He gave his physical body there on the cross as the great substitute. Having purchased our salvation, the Holy Spirit then brings us to faith in Jesus by the message of the gospel and makes us a part of his spiritual body. When Paul writes the body is one, he's talking about the body of Christ made up of all true believers, Christ being the head, we being the body. Now we're his hands and feet on this earth, we are the body of Christ, many members one body, and it's a very diverse body. Paul says whether you're Jews or whether you're Greeks, whether you're slaves or whether you're free, it's part of his argument in chapters 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. Though the body's very diverse, you're, you're, you're one body. should honor each other as such. The Holy Spirit then gives us varied gifts that are used in the one body. Paul the Apostle is calling us to unity despite our different uh, socioeconomic status as we we learned last week regarding communion, our race, our ethnicity, or our spiritual gifts. I think this is the, the big idea of what Paul is focused on, not so much defining the gifts that he lists here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now having said that, I would like to try to define these gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And, the, and, and let me just say again, I don't think this is an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts, the nine gifts listed in this first part of this chapter. Uh, there are many, many other spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament. But I'd like to to attempt to give a definition for um, the nine gifts that he lists here. And let me start by saying uh, some of the gifts that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 12 are not defined anywhere in Scripture, like the word of wisdom or the utterance of wisdom, the word of knowledge. Nowhere do we have a definition that says this is what that is. So what I'm going to share with you at this point, let me stress, is my opinion. Uh, based. I'll try to base it on, on uh, Scripture as much as possible. But again, some of these are not defined in, in Scripture. So, What are the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 verses 8 through 10? Nine gifts are listed here. And again, I think there are many other gifts that go by the the term uh, charismaton or charisma elsewhere in the New Testament. So I don't think it's an exhaustive list. I think he's just giving some examples here. The utterance of wisdom or the word of wisdom. What is that spiritual gift? Doesn't God want us all to have wisdom at all times? Sure he does. Can't we all ask God for wisdom at any time? Sure we can. But Paul says there's a gift. It's given as the spirit wills called the utterance or the word of wisdom. What is it? I would suggest that this is a special impartation of God's wisdom to meet a specific need at a particular time. For example, in the Old Testament, King Solomon, before he became uh, king, and we read about this in the book of 1 Kings chapter 3, he sought God for wisdom. He acknowledged his need for God's wisdom. He humbled himself. God promised to give him great wisdom. And then there came a test in 1 Kings chapter 3. There were two women, each had a little baby boy, one of whose babies died during the night. And that woman got up during the night and switched the child who died for the living child of the other woman in the room with her. The next morning, they disputed whose child belonged to whom. And they brought this dispute before the king, who was to make a judgment on this. Everybody watched to see whether this new king could make a right judgment. Solomon said, bring me a sword. And he said, here's what we'll do. We'll divide the child, give half to her, half to her, because each says the child is her own. But one woman cried out, by no means, Lord, give her the child. Don't kill the child. Don't touch the baby. Solomon said, Solomon said, she's the real mother. And then we read that all the people perceived the wisdom of God had been given to Solomon. Now, This wisdom had come to God as, as a gift. How might that work out in your life? Let's suppose you face a dilemma of some type and there's just no good answer. And it's it's an important uh, matter that's before you, but it's a real dilemma. You have no idea what to do. And then God brings to your mind a solution that you would have never reasoned out on your own to solve that difficult problem. Could that be a word of wisdom? Perhaps, again, it's not defined in Scripture. It may be that this is a gift that's particularly valuable for for Christian counselors who are faced with dilemmas and difficult situations between different parties all the time. Not defined in Scripture, but perhaps that's a word of wisdom. What about the word of knowledge? Word of knowledge, I think, could be defined as an impartation of God's knowledge, something that could only be known because God revealed it far more specific than the word of wisdom, the knowledge of facts that are known to God but not to us. For example, in the Old Testament, we read of this often. Prophets having knowledge of something about someone that only God could have given them. The prophet Samuel, talking to to, uh, Saul, who would become king, uh, told Saul, uh, you can go back home now. The donkeys you came here searching for, they've been found. How did he know that? How did he know that? God revealed it to him. We see this often in Jesus. Jesus knew the thoughts of the scribes and Pharisees. When Jesus talked with a woman at the well, he said, go call your husband. He said, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. You've had five husbands. The man you're living with now is not your husband. Specific knowledge he knew. What about Peter in Acts chapter 5? A man named Ananias and Sapphira came before him. Uh, trying to get credit for giving a bunch of money for some land they'd sold yet. Peter knew they were lying. How did he know they were lying? God revealing this to him. One of my favorite preachers in church history uh, was a man named Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon lived in the 1800s, 1834 to 1892. Died when he was only 58. But there are, I, I, I heard by one account, Uh, as many words by Charles Spurgeon in print in the world as there are of any other person in history. I can't confirm that, but I've heard that because he just, he came along preaching at a time when publishing was started and all the sermons were published. He was just an incredible preacher in England, one of the, pastor of one of the first real megachurches in the world. And he shares a number of accounts in his preaching where God put things into his mind that he could not have otherwise known. For example, one of his sermons, he points out in the congregation, it was a large congregation of thousands of people, and he said, young man, those gloves you're wearing have not been paid for. You've stolen them from your employer. After the service, a troubled young man came, placed a pair of gloves on a table and confessed to having stolen them. That comes out of Spurgeon's autobiography. One of his hearers shared this account. I'll read it. He said, Mr. Spurgeon looked at me, this is while he was preaching, as if he knew me, and in his sermon he pointed to me and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays, and I did, sir. Now, that was at a time when you weren't supposed to have a shop open on Sunday. I did, sir. I should not have minded that, but he also said I took nine pence the Sunday before and that there was four pence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day and four pence was just the profit. how he should know, I could not tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards I went and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. Spurgeon recalled a number of instances in his ministry that we might consider examples of the word of knowledge. He himself wrote these words. He said, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right except that I was believed, I was moved by the Holy Spirit to say it. Maybe you're praying with someone. This sort of thing has happened to me before a few times. Maybe you're praying with somebody at one of the prayer tables in the back, and they come and ask you to pray with them about a tough situation at work. And you pray with them. But as you're praying, it comes to your mind to pray about their their marriage. And so you pray about their marriage. Afterwards, they look at you and say, Why did you pray about my marriage? And you say, I'm not sure. I just... Thought I should. And then they say, explain to you that there's a real crisis there. And your prayer just seemed to be guided uh, to say exactly what was needed in that situation. Could that be a word of knowledge? Perhaps. Perhaps. It's not defined in Scripture. What about the gift of faith? That's the third in this list that Paul gives in verses 8 through 10. What is this faith? Like wisdom, like knowledge, we're all to have wisdom, we're all to seek knowledge, we're all to have faith. By grace are you saved through faith. But the gift of faith, that which is apportioned individually as the Spirit wills, I think could be considered an enabling from the Holy Spirit to trust God in an unusual way. Like in the Old Testament, when God told Joshua to take the troops and march around the walls of Jericho seven times, and then the walls would fall down? (laughs) Do you think that required exceptional faith to believe that would happen? I would say absolutely it did. What about the prophet Elijah when he had a contest with 400 uh, uh, idolatrous priests, prophets of Baal, a contest to who could call on their God and fire would come from heaven and burn up the sacrifice? Did that require extraordinary faith? I would say it did. When we're enabled to trust God in an unusual way, maybe for an answer to prayer, maybe to trust God that things are going to work out despite how bad things look and how dire a situation is. Maybe your prayer's not been answered, but just trusting God that he's good and he'll care for you and he'll sustain you, a special grace charisma, impartation of the grace of God to strengthen your faith, a gift from God. What about gifts of healings? Uh, Now, that's not a typo with both words plural. In in Greek, both words are plural, in fact. Uh, I would simply say this one's kind of obvious, healing brought about by God's intervention. Some people say, you know, these gifts came with the apostles and they were foundational for the church and they, they passed away. I don't believe that. I believe these gifts are, are valid throughout the life of the church until Jesus returns and they're no longer needed. In fact, they didn't start with the apostles. They didn't start in the New Testament. God's healings are seen throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in the book of Exodus, uh, Moses, is, uh, 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 Moses' sister Miriam is stricken with leprosy. Moses prays for her, and God heals her. Many of the Israelites, being led by Moses in in the book of Numbers, are stricken with sickness. Moses puts a bronze serpent on a pole, and everyone who looked at it was healed. The Old Testament, the prophet told Naaman the Syrian to go dip in the Jordan River, and he did, and he was healed of his leprosy. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus went about healing all over the place likewise the apostles paul and peter but not just the apostles stephen philip a deacon again as the spirit wills what about the working of miracles listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 8 through 10 i think we could find define this as god's enabling to do something that's impossible by mere human means And again, I think we see miracles in Old and New Testaments. Two prophets in the Old Testament in particular, Moses certainly, saw extraordinary miracles like the parting of the Red Sea, laws of nature suspended. Prophets Elijah and Elisha saw any number of miracles. The book of Acts chapter 19 says God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, not only the apostles, Stephen who was a deacon, the Bible says, God did great wonders and signs among the people through Stephen. I do tend to think, and this is just my opinion, on uh, reading countless missionary accounts and talking to countless missionaries over the years, that, that these dramatic instances seem to be seen more often when the gospel is going into new and previously unreached. Areas. What about the gift of prophecy? What about the gift of prophecy? This one's going to take, take a few minutes for us because um, I think it's important to understand something about this gift. I think we could define prophecy as the Apostle Paul is speaking of it in 1 Corinthians, as words prompted by the Holy Spirit in order to build up, encourage, or comfort Others. Now, this one Paul defines for us in First Corinthians 14 and verse 3. This one, he actually gives a definition of what this is. And you may have been used with this gift, and you may not even be aware of it. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Now, notice there's nothing there about predicting the future. There's nothing there about declaring judgment on people. This is very different from what we know of as prophecy in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, prophets were God's primary spokespersons. Uh, Prophecy in the Old Testament, if we read the whole Old Testament and added it all up, I think we'd probably say, that uh, a lot of it, if not the majority, had to do with pronouncing judgments. Judgments on disobedient people, judgments on nations. A lot of judgment in the Old Testament. A lot of prediction as well. Prophecy in the Old Testament was considered God's authoritative word. prophet gets up and says something false, that person could be put to death. The word prophecy is also used um, to to refer broadly to Old Testament Scripture. Peter, writing of the Old Testament, says, "...no prophecy of Scripture came by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were born along or carried along by the Holy Spirit." So there's this authoritative uh, word of God regarding the prophecy of the Old Testament, regard to Scripture. And now, Paul says in the New Testament, this simple gift, what we call a, might call a simple gift of prophecy, is to speak to people for upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. And then he goes on to say this in chapter 14 Let the prophets speak two or three, and the others judge what is said. Prophecy is to be judged, to be weighed, to be evaluated. Paul would also write these words to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 19 to 21 He writes do not quench the spirit do not despise prophecies but test everything hold fast what is good don't despise prophesyings but test it it should be judged it should be weighed it should be evaluated it should be tested we read in the book of acts judas and silas being prophets themselves encouraged and uh, strengthened the the brethren with many words encouragement strengthening upbuilding encouragement consolation here's the point i'm trying to make there's a very big difference in this gift and what we think of as the ministry of a prophet in the old testament that had to be infallible and so it leads me to make this point and And I'll tell you in a moment why I think it's so very important. I think you'll see it on the screen. I'm not sure. Uh, But Scripture is infallible. Scripture is infallible, but the operation of spiritual gifts is not. Scripture is infallible, but the operation of spiritual gifts is not. By infallible, I mean without error. Scripture is our authoritative guide. But when somebody comes to you and says, God told me to tell you something, that's not infallible in the way that Scripture is infallible. You should always judge that by Scripture. You should weigh that. Even the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth prophecy should be weighed, it should be judged, it should be evaluated. I stress this because we're living in a time right now because of television and because of the internet, especially because of the internet. There are just tons of people out out there, self-proclaimed prophets, prophesying all kinds of stuff that's going to happen. I don't spend time watching a lot of this, I promise you I don't. But I do see it popping up a lot on YouTube and places like that, all these prophecies about Uh, things are going to happen, prophesying who's going to win an election, all this kind of stuff. Paul defines a simple gift this way. Speak to people for upbuilding, encouragement, and comfort. And judge it by the written word of God. Judge it by the written word of God. Prophecy. Next gift. Discerning between spirits. This is another one. We're not really told what this is. Distinguishing between spirits, discerning of spirits. I would suggest, and again, a lot of this is just my opinion, uh, the God-given ability to discern whether the power at work in someone or something is good or bad. I do think we have an example of this gift in the book of Acts, chapter 16, where we read these words about the Apostle Paul. We read this. He cast out a demon. Now, how did Paul know it was a demon? Because what the girl said was true. She said, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed you the way of salvation. Well, everybody in the city knew that this girl was a fortune teller. And for her to align herself with Paul uh, and uh, Silas would, would, would pretty much cloud the message that they were bringing of truth. Paul discerned the demon, and he cast out the demon. When I was a young Christian, very young in my faith, I went with somebody to a meeting. I think it was in Greensboro, and some, I don't even remember the person's name, some well-known person. There's a big crowd in this meeting. He seemed to be calling people up on stage, telling them things about them that, that no one could have known, seemingly. And um, he was praying for people, having people come up. And even as a very young Christian and not knowing much at all, to me something was just amiss about this man. It was just something, something not right. I did not go up to have him pray for me. Years later, I was so grateful when I read in a news report that he had been arrested for a crime. Was God protecting me in my ignorance and immaturity? Was this gift at work? I don't know. Maybe. You may discern sometime that a certain person just, there's just something there that shouldn't be trusted. You shouldn't invest your money with them. You shouldn't allow them to to watch your kids. Be prayerful. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. And he does it for the good of his people, for the protection of his people, for the upbuilding of his body. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. The gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, various kinds of tongues, the God-given ability to speak in a language known only to God. Some people say, well, this is just the ability to learn new languages or understand known languages. But Paul, this, this is another one that he gives some definition to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 2, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. No one understands it. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. This gift, Paul will go on to say in chapter 14, should always work in conjunction in the church body, in a gathered church setting, with an interpretation, because no one understands him. So he links it to the interpretation of tongues. That's making known, as you'll see on the next slide, uh, the message spoken in tongues so that hearers can understand it. Now, when there's a message in tongues and then it's interpreted, the the net effect would be much like prophecy, speaking to people for upbuilding, encouragement, and comfort. And so Paul says this, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so the church may be built up. So the the net effect of the interpretation of the tongue should be in the church gathering, much like prophecy, upbuilding, edification of people. I'd like to keep going on here, but we, uh, boy, we're already about out of time, aren't we? Um, I do want to close with one quick story, though. Because there's so much controversy about this matter of tongues and interpretation. And... um, I hesitate to share this because it's my own experience, but it's the only experience I have. It's the only example I have. And so I'll close with this. It's been a long time ago, uh, but when I was uh, in my maybe early 20s, um, maybe mid-20s, I moved to Winston-Salem. I had fallen in love with the Bible, God's Word, the Scripture. I was studying it. As much as I could, memorizing it, and God began opening doors for me to teach the Bible. And, uh, you know, Bible study here, or there, speak here, or there in Winston Salem. I began uh, dealing with a fear that was not like anything I'd ever dealt with before. And it would come against me. I, I was a sales rep. I could, I could present my sales product. I worked for a company called Lanier Business Products. I could present the product to a room of people, not have any problem. But when it came to teaching the Bible, this fear would grip me, and it was almost paralyzing. I was in a small Sunday school classroom one morning and felt like there was something I was supposed to say, and I literally could not speak. And yet I felt God was calling me to teach the Bible. I was devastated that day. I went home. I had w- been visiting my parents in Charlotte. When I'd been to that little Sunday school class, I, I was laying on the bed in the room where I grew up, and I had my little Gideon Bible. It was a King James Version. I opened it up, and I read 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. This is King James language. It said, The servant of the Lord must not strive, <clears throat> meaning quarrel, But be gentle to all, apt to teach, and goes on and on and on. When I read the words apt to teach, it was like they were burned within my heart that God was going to allow me to teach the Bible. And it encouraged me, but the fear did not leave in fact, it continued. I memorized scriptures about fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I sought the Lord. He heard me, delivered me from all my fears. I quoted them. I did everything I could. But when an opportunity came to teach the Bible, that fear was, was there. I tried to press on. One evening, a friend and I went to a, a meeting at a, a the church is not even still there uh, Middle part of Winston Salem, and three men were speaking. I didn't know anything about them. All I knew is they had spent the whole night in prayer the night before this meeting. And during the meeting, they asked for anyone to come up for prayer who felt they were called to full-time ministry, vocational ministry. I was a sales rep. I didn't know I was called to ministry. I thought I might be. I didn't know. And so I went forward. was sitting in the very back and went forward. These three men came along and they were praying for those who came forward. And as they began to approach me, I sensed the presence of God such that I, I think I began to weep. It was very unusual for me. As the man came near me, he started praying in tongues. As he stood before me, he opened his mouth, and the first words out of his mouth were, "'Apt to teach.'" The very words that God had burned into my heart from the scripture, and I had told no one. He went on to give words that encouraged me about the teaching of God's word. I won't share, I've, I've never shared this publicly before uh, today. But I share this just to say that um, though the fear didn't go right away, I was tremendously encouraged by the word from God's word and the the edifying confirmation that came from this man that did not know me. And the fear eventually went away. There have been a few times over the years when I was sitting there before getting up to preach even and the thought would come, you know, that fear could come back. But it's reminded me of this. I can't even stand up and speak apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from the grace of God. And so if it helps me be fully dependent on him, that's good. That's good. Three questions by way of application and we'll close. Most important of all this passage, am I sure I'm part of the one body? For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the one body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Are you sure you've embraced the message of the gospel of Jesus so that the Holy Spirit has made you a part of the one body? Secondly, as a member of the body, when I come to church, youth, small group, whatever it is, am I just thinking about what am I going to get today? How am I going to be encouraged? What am I going to get out of it? How am I going to like the music? Am I going to get to see my friends? Maybe we should change our thinking and say, how can I encourage others? The Apostle Paul says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That is, speak to others for their upbuilding, encouragement, or consolation. And then thirdly, and finally, Am I asking the Lord to give me the gifts that will make me most effective in building up others? Let's pray about that today. Father, we thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. Thank you that through our faith in Jesus, he makes us a part of the one body. Make us a church that's focused on the common good, building up others, meeting their needs, encouraging them. And we ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.